Hello and welcome to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. Uh, I'm Andrew and I'm joined as always by Hannah and Hugh, and on this episode we'll be asking the question, can we ever image the surface of an exoplanet? Also make sure you check out this month's other episodes where we will interview Dr. Sarah Casewell about irradiated brown dwarfs in Exocast 44b, and also cover all things exoplanets in Exoplanet News uh, in Exocast 44d. Uh, so Hugh, why don't you kick us off uh, in this very interesting topic? Yeah, so I think we talked last month about whether whether we could ever travel to an exoplanet and whether we could ever explore directly in situ the surface of an exoplanet. And I think our responses were probably no. <laughs> it's too far and too long to get there and, um, you know, for, for a multitude of reasons. But the next kind of step back from that is whether we need to, right? Whether there are ways we can explore um, the surfaces of exoplanets without going there. And chiefly how we do it in the solar system is we take images of the surfaces and we use that to inform our knowledge of what's what the planet is like right so that was um so that's something I, I wondered whether whether we would be able to ever directly image or indirectly image an exoplanet um and there's lots of reasons i can think about why that would be really really useful and i'm sure you guys have too um and the first thing that kind of came to my mind was um was this experiment that, that sagan led back in the 90s when galileo the probe that eventually made its way to jupiter passed by earth and for a brief while, as it was passing Earth, it pointed its sensors back at Earth, and it, it used this kind of um, the spectra and the map that it got from Earth to try and figure out whether life would have been detectable um, if Earth were an, another planet or an exoplanet, right? And they found that yes, it would. That the um, that they were able to detect things like the red edge. So that's this photosynthetic. Um, the, the the effect that a photosynthetic pigment has, so leaves and and plants on Earth have on the spectrum of Earth um, as a whole. And Carl, Carl Sagan and, and the Galileo team were able to detect this on the Earth, and they were also able to detect, I believe, things like uh, continents um, as it passed by. Um, so that's that's one way to kind of directly measure the whether a planet is inhabited through. Um, obtaining maps of earth and you could also think about that even more in terms of a 2d kind of map of where that those those um forests might be i guess and another thing you could look at is maybe seasonal changes you know rocks and and don't really change over the season but but plants and animal life do so if seasonal changes might be another measure of habitability i mean is this just about habitability because we do see not seasonal changes so much, but we we have got measurements of brown dwarfs and variation over time, which is caused by clouds. And these clouds rotating around the brown dwarf as we're observing it, we see deeper and shallower layers of the atmosphere, which tells us a lot about what's forming there. And we see the same thing with the Earth. We see the clouds. The clouds are highly reflective. And the changes that they cause when they're in the view compared to when they're not. So is this question, can we image the surface of an exoplanet? I think there's lots of different things we need to define first. Yes. What do we mean? Yeah. Do we mean 
it has to be a surface. So we're talking about a terrestrial like planet or, you know, even the whole concept of a map. What do we mean by map? Where, where do we stop? Where does, where does that begin? And where does that end? How many pixels do you need to consider it a map? How many different areas do you need to consider it a map? And I just, I think that there's some broad things that we need to try and try and understand first about the question. Right, yeah. So, I mean, I think, I guess what I had in mind in terms of a map is whether we can ever resolve features on the surface. You know, what when we currently detect exoplanets, we, well, we barely ever see direct light coming from the surfaces to begin with, right? We find them through indirect effects they have on their stars, for the most part. There are directly imaged planets where that's not true, um, and some hot Jupiters where we've directly detected the flux coming off the planet but normally um, but again these don't have surfaces right so we're not talking about the same thing as what we're we're both you know standing on right yes i guess surface and or cloud top right there's those we need to kind of include both of them because as you say most of the planets in our solar system don't have a surface we can actually observe um but I think, I mean, the most dynamic places in the solar system, or the least, you know, when we observe solar system planets, the coolest thing to get is to look at the surface over time and see what's happening on, you know, see the clouds moving, see see the craters on the surface, see the continents in the case of Earth. You know, I think, I think that's... Um, see the volcanoes that's, in the case of Io, for example. Yeah. The moons in our solar system have the most dynamic and changing maps. If you look at just the Galilean satellites, the four main moons of Jupiter... The maps are vastly different. In fact, there was some work done by Laura Mayorga who did took a look at some of the Cassini data and some of the maps that they got of Jupiter's moons and translated that into reflective spectra for what you might see as an exoplanet. And that's just really interesting concept. If we bin this down, what does it mean? What colors change? So I think in terms of maps, we can look at many, many different things not just pixels or segments or features, but also colors and, like you said, time resolution as well. Yeah, but I think what, what I, why we might want to observe the, the surface in you know, multiple resolution is because there's features there which don't appear if you're just looking at a planet indirectly or with a, you know, a single point of light. You know, if you look at the spectra of, of Earth with a single point of light, you probably don't see all of the the interesting stuff that happens over the course of a day and a year. And, you know, the, the individual continents obviously get smeared out. You might have some idea that there's land and earth and water, sorry, but you would have no idea what 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 kind of um, pattern those were in and, and what was happening on a kind of deeper level. And I think the only way, uh, once once we get to a point where we understand quite well planets as a point of light, you know, we understand their spectra and we understand maybe something about, um, you know, their orbit, then we need to go deeper. We need to find out, um, you know, what's what's the difference, you know, within that one pixel, what's happening over the surface of the planet. Because um, that's, I mean, it's also just hella interesting, right? I mean, getting, an, getting a map of an exoplanet would be so amazing. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons that, that we should, you know, that people are working towards it. Okay, so where do we start? Well, I mean... When we take maps of the planets in our own solar system, what we tend to do is just put a telescope either from Earth, we can point a big telescope and we can resolve the surface, or we put a telescope nearby. Um, and you could t- plausibly do that for an exoplanet, right? So um, 
one of the problems you have if you want to directly image, directly resolve features on the surface of a planet is that the resolution, so that um, ability to discern two different uh, points separately, effectively, um, that's that's dominated by, um, well, the distance, obviously, that's things as two points further away are less likely to be resolved, and the wavelength, um, and also the size of the telescope. So actually, your resolution scales with one over the, the size of your telescope. Um, so in order to get, say, 100 pixels for the surface of an Earth-like planet around Alpha Centauri, then you need a resolution of something like five micro arc seconds. You know, that's uh, it doesn't really mean much to us, but what that basically means is is for a telescope to do it, to get something that um, fine uh, around Alpha Centauri, our nearest star, it would need to be something like 23 kilometers across uh, in the optical. So right now I'd like to point out that if we're talking optical, we, we are we talking, we are talking glass and mirrors there, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. so I did some did some calculations here. I wanted to try and understand how much glass that would be. Uh, so to cover a, a diameter of 23 kilometers, that's 1,662 kilometers squared in area. The ELT, so the Extremely Large Telescope from Europe that's going to be built in Chile, is has a diameter of 39 meters, not kilometers, meters. And that's only 0 0.042 kilometers squared. Sorry, yeah. 0 0.042 kilometers squared, even, even smaller and that itself has 798 individual glass segments. And the tertiary mirror alone, which is four meters across, already weighs 3.2 tons. And it took me forever to find that number. The tertiary mirror, not the secondary mirror. Yeah. The third mirror. The, 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 the one meter mirror. The yeah. tiny one, 3.2 tons. Yeah, and I that mean, doesn't it, even consider every single one of these mirrors. If we're talking the optical, would need to be covered, coated in a very fine layer of silver. How much silver would that take? The James Webb Space Telescope is six point five meters across. It contains a golf ball sized amount of coating, just coating, which is less than two. Is that gold? Didn't they coat it with gold? It's I with think. gold, yeah, a golf ball size of gold. But that's six point five meters across. This 23 kilometers. <laughs> yeah. All like the, the silver amount of in the silver, world. Do we have that much silver? <laughs> yeah, I think the reason I mentioned this number is because it is pretty unfeasible, right? I don't think humanity will ever build <laughs> a parabolic surface that's 23 kilometers across, you know. Um, and, and the worst thing is, right, I mean, we probably... Uh, we probably want to want to want to not just do one single wavelength. We want to go into the infrared as well. And because it's a function of your your wavelength, then you need 100 kilometer mirror in the infrared, which um, is even more ridiculous, you know. And by infrared, so do you just mean this red edge? Because that is actually it's not that far into the infrared. It's still considered, if you want, in terms of the detectors, not even in terms of the mirrors, the mirrors alone would need silver still. It doesn't require a different coating for that wavelength. So they're only about 650 to 750 nanometers where that red edge oh, right. is. So we would still be able to do it with a silver coated mirror and a CCD. So that's yeah, actually more like microns. Okay. In terms no. of technology, that you can cover that range, which is really, you know, interesting and useful. So you wouldn't need two different 
types of telescopes. So the reason why the James Webb Space Telescope is coated in gold is because it's going well into the infrared. It's going from that 600 nanometers all the way out to 30 microns. So it's a huge range that it's doing in the infrared. But whilst you stay within that kind of optical range, so below one micron, where that red edge, you definitely definitely have that red edge for the Earth, you can stick within the CCD and silver coating kind of realm. Yeah. So, but all, all to say that um, building a telescope that big is probably impossible. Um, yes. It doesn't make it any easier. <laughs> I mean, we're... We uh, Europe is spending a billion euros in order to build a telescope that's 38 meters across, right? So um, it's a long way off. But um, it doesn't kind of mean it's impossible because as we heard about on previous episodes like Exocast 35, when I talked a bit about uh, direct imaging, uh, there is a way to get over this barrier of, of your telescope dimensions without building an enormous mirror and that is with interferometry so that means basically you precisely connect multiple smaller telescopes feed their light together um, in perfect alignment so you need to align the light that's coming in from each telescopes in kind of less than the wavelength of the telescope to get this to work Um, and once you feed all those those uh, those signals together you can mimic effectively a large dish that's the size of the, the diameter, the distance between your furthest telescopes. Um, currently, this is only possible for, for nearby telescopes, so telescopes relatively close together, on, well, on long wavelengths. Did they do it for the black hole? Yes. So for radio wavelengths, which are, you know, meters long, oh, it's a lot easier because combining them, you can time the arrival so well that you don't, you can just put them on a memory disk and combine them later effectively. Oh, okay. Uh, which isn't possible for something like well, in the optical, certainly isn't possible. In the near infrared, there is uh, capability for like things like gravity on the VLT, which is four telescopes about 100 meters apart, which have been combined in the near infrared. Uh, but that's kind of the limit. So we're still, you know, 100 meters. We have to go to 100 kilometers still, but um, it's not impossible. And and the, one of the ways that going to a much further distances is is, is you know aided is if we can go to space. So um, space-based infrared like TPF, so the Terrestrial Planet Finder, which was this proposed mission in the 90s and noughties, uh, which was cancelled, was the idea was to build multiple space-based telescopes, which would interferometrically connect and image exoplanets. Um, so one way that um, one wacky way that astronomers and engineers have thought about doing this is building a so-called Einstein telescope. So that's basically where you place a telescope at something like 600 or 700 AU from the sun. And then because the sun in gravitational rel- or in because the sun in general relativity bends light around it, uh, you can use that bending to basically create a telescope the size of the sun. Um, and that, you know, once you have a telescope the size of the sun, you can um, obviously image things much smaller than the surface of an exoplanet. Uh, the problem is, of course, with pointing. So you need to be exactly anti-sunward from your target, and you need to be 650 AU away as well. So um, actually, you know, maneuvering your spa- your telescope around so it can image, th- use this Einstein uh, GR to kind of image another planet, that's kind of the tricky bit. And that's probably why this is, you know only ever going to remain on the drawing uh, board and not in reality um, just the fuel itself to get to get to that distance and then what about servicing oh yeah yeah i was trying to and work think- out what the light travel time at 600 au was but i couldn't hang on 
and the period out there is like 16,000 years. So uh, Yeah, exactly. It takes a while to get round if you want to observe the exoplanet again, you know. Well, and you also <laughs> so you need to know your target. You have you, basically that telescope would have a single target. Yeah, I think that's that would probably be how it works, yeah. And another kind of similar but different way of maybe building an earth-sized um, telescope is something called the telescope, which David Kipping was was came up with a couple of years ago, which is where instead of using the solar um, general rel- the solar kind of space-time lens, uh, you use the Earth's atmosphere as a lens. And the atmosphere itself, because of refraction through the atmosphere, can lens light around it and into a point that's a couple of hundred kilometres above the surface of the Earth, which makes it slightly easier to, to manoeuvre. Um, but again, it's you know I think there's a lot of uh, questions about whether this, this would work in reality. Um, You'd have to know exactly what was in the Earth's atmosphere that was lensing it at exactly the time and what distribution that was. Yeah, the Earth's atmosphere is probably quite chaotic. And then that would still absorb certain wavelengths that we would really... Because like we talked about before, the Earth's atmosphere, that red edge comes from the Earth's atmosphere. We're seeing those things. That would be imprinted on all of your light. The and the water is, would be imprinted on all of the light. Yeah. So you couldn't look for water. Yeah, no, totally. Or carbon dioxide or, or carbon, ozone. Or, or any of the things that we want to find. Like CFCs, which would be very yeah. indicative of life. Advanced life. <laughs> Not very intelligent life, but... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and of course, as we, we talked about earlier, there's space-based, space-based interferometric missions like TPF and SIM, which... Um, are kind of the the closest to reality, but still probably 20, 30 years away from ever being proposed. Um. There's also NASA's funded a concept to turn a crater on the moon into a radio telescope. Yeah. So, I mean, it gets us to the right size that we need. Well, it's it's a three three to five kilometer. Oh, tiny. So tiny compared to what we need. (laughs) But... I mean, that's it's getting a, somewhere. It's a step up. That's for it's sure. a step up. <laughs> um, but fortunately, if, if building like a 100-kilometer telescope does seem impossible, uh, and it may well be, then don't worry because there are multiple ways you can actually generate a map of, of a planet or you know anything, in fact, without resolving the light directly from the surface. Um, so I thought we should cover a few of those because those look like to me, at least, a far more likely way we'll be able to ever get a surface image. Oh, of them. definitely. Yeah. So the way this works is that basically, for for almost all planets and you know almost all objects, we see different regions of the surface at different times. So um, you know, parts of the surface move into and out of the view, um, and therefore, if the if you can um, if you can look at the brightness over time, and attribute that to the change in what you're seeing on the planet over time then you can uh, build a map using that brightness distribute all that brightness variation over time um, so for exoplanets you can think of this either as like the rotation of the planet moving different parts into view or thanks to some of the planet being temporarily covered up uh, eg like an eclipse right so um, so so when planets move behind their star or where a moon moves in front of the planet um, so so kind of the first way that this was this was actually used on exoplanets was in uh, to do phase mapping so uh, hot jupiters because they're tidally locked they basically rotate in our line of sight once per orbit which means uh, one side's permanently facing the star um, 
As such, over the course of one rotation of the planet, and if the star isn't kind of doing things uh, during that observation, then changes in the surface features vary the reflection and emission of the planet as they rotate into and out of view. And so you can, that one dimensional change in light, we can use that to form an image of the planet's surface. Um, so, so this technique has actually been done for a handful of hot Jupiters in both the visible and the infrared, uh, and in some cases in multiple wavelengths. Yes, and multiple wavelengths is really important here because when you're doing this this phase mapping, you're seeing the segmentation kind of move uh, and seeing different portions of that planet that are either emitting or reflecting that light. And that can give you this... It would just really be a 2D map of the atmosphere. But if you do it in lots of different wavelengths, if you do it over all of the different colours from optical to the infrared if you do it as as much as you can what you're also then probing is if we're talking about an atmosphere you're probing different regions of the atmosphere so if you've got this if you're looking at it in the infrared compared to say in a feature with spitzer so if spitzer's at four four point five microns that's going to be predominantly for giant planets uh looking at co2 if you're looking in the near infrared of Hubble with one of the infrared grisms, you'll be looking for water absorption. Those will be probing very different pressure regions in the atmosphere. So in this really nice region with Hubble, you get this feature where you can see the absorption due to water or the emission due to water. But you also get outside of that feature, you get the baseline so what you can do with that is, with this mapping technique, you can probe two different pressure levels in that planetary atmosphere. You can probe two different regions. So you're turning your 2D map into a 3D map where your third dimension is depth down into the atmosphere. And when we're talking about something like a surface instead, what you would then be probing with these different wavelengths is a different reflectivity of the surface itself. So the different composition of that surface. So this has been done for quite a few planets now, am I right? Yeah, it has. So phase phase mapping is something that has been done for quite a large number of planets. The first one that was done was a photometric one with the Spitzer Space Telescope. And by photometric, I mean it was done with one colour, one band pass. And this was presented in Knudsen et al. in 2007. So it's been a really long time since this technique yeah. has been used, a really long time. Uh, but one of the best spectroscopic maps is of the water absorption feature, like I just described, in the atmosphere of WASP-43b, which is presented in a series of papers where they kind of build up to this kind of final paper, which was uh, Stevenson 2017. So 10 years after that first map, that photometric map, we're getting these really beautiful spectroscopic maps of individual absorption features so individual species in the atmosphere and what you can see from this wasp 43 data is a beautiful change as you go from the day side to the night side of the planet where you see the water absorption turn into water emission so instead of seeing it the light passing through the atmosphere where the water is absorbing that light and we're seeing the water absorbing that light, you start to see the planet as it passes around and then behind its star where you're only seeing the emission from the planet itself. So the thermal, the light from the planet itself, and we see that water then causing an emission feature. So it's a really beautiful map that they got of water and where it is in this planetary atmosphere. And and basically it's everywhere in this planetary atmosphere. And that's really, really interesting. 
I guess one of one of the um, the problems we have with phase mapping is that um, you only really get a longitudinal map, right? You don't get latitudinal um, information you because do, but of as the phase you... moves, as the as the light moves around the phase, you're effectively revealing a, a longitudinal strip of, of of surface of the planet or atmosphere of the planet in this case each time, and so you don't know if if the if the emission or absorption is coming from the top or the bottom. Yeah, that's a that's a really important point. But another thing that I think is really important to 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 mention here in terms of these phase mapping is what they've revealed. And what they've revealed is that the atmospheres themselves are circulating. They're rapidly, rapidly rotating the atmospheres. And we're seeing instead of the hottest point of the planet, these are tidally locked, remember, so they've got a permanent day side, permanent night side, the hottest point of the planet you would assume to be in direct line with the star. So directly underneath the star. But what we're seeing from a lot of these phase curves, these phase maps, is that that hottest point is shifted away from that substellar point. And that shift actually tells us that there is transport of this heat from that day side, that immediate day side around the planet. So we're learning from these phase maps that there is circulation, there is 3D information, there is winds on these worlds that are moving around them. So we, we are learning a lot from them about what is happening to the planets, the atmospheres, and, and now we need to dig further. Yeah, and I, I guess actually we're already moving into, from, from the hot Jupiter regime where we've been able to do this, into the kind of rocky planet regime, because there's been some, I think, was it LHS 3844b, which was the it first was, rocky yeah. planet to have this, this, this measurement done? And what they found there was that there was no shift. There was no shift in this this hottest point and they inferred from that that there was an atmosphere around this planet this is a very small rocky rocky density like world and and they inferred from the measurement that they made that it was it did not have any substantial atmosphere Mm -hmm. so we are pushing down like you said to these smaller and smaller worlds but they are still limited to the closest in and therefore the hottest of these small worlds Mm -hmm. Because it takes a lot of observation time, and now that we've lost the Spitzer Space Telescope, that observation time is gonna gonna be more difficult to come by. Okay, so Hannah, I thought it was really interesting. You were talking about water in the atmosphere uh, as being a pretty powerful signal, uh, but there is some possibility that we could find water on the surface as being not just uh, you know indicative of surface habitability. That's the thing we're looking for, but also as uh, as a, a way of mapping the surface of the planet. Um, the idea of of detecting ocean glint is something that was uh, I think suggested by Ty Robertson about ten years ago or so. But we have uh, also touched on our exoplanet biosignatures papers from a few years ago. And that it's a really uh, potentially powerful uh, way of detecting the kind of difference between the uh, the, the surface uh, or, the, or the continents and the ocean, right? So you imagine, you know, if you're driving along, uh, along the coast in a car or if you've been in a, in a plane and the, the sun's just at the right angle and you look out across the ocean uh, and you get an eyeful of uh, eyeful of photons as the as the, the the light bounces off the surface and hits you square in the in the retina. Well, the th- that's the same theory, but we'll be doing this over, you know, astronomical distances where we can see the specular reflection of the, of the starlight off the ocean uh, of a planet uh, which could reveal, you know, that the heterogeneity, at least, Hugh is totally right. We wouldn't get that latitudinal, uh, you know, kind of resolution where we could say, oh, there's a, there's a, there's a, an ocean at the equator, but we could say that there is some uh, maybe fractional amount of water relative to the amount of land 
in that strip, right? Which is kind of cool. So as the planet nears this crescent phase, the, the size of this glint, you know, should, should increase relative to the fraction of the illuminated disk. And then bam, you get this big reflection signal. So in theory, that's, that's something we could do with, uh, with James Webb. Is that different with snow as well? Cause when you go, when you go skiing, you have to put sun cream on because the snow will reflect the sunlight and it can burn your face. Is it, does that have the same? reflectivity or would we see a distinct difference between the two or, or would the combined effect of like we said it's just a sliver so if the poles are icy like on the earth and then you've got water in the middle would that how would we disentangle that information that's a great question uh, and I, I it's, it's going to be tricky and there's also a stellar effect in there as well right ices uh, around a planet around an, an m dwarf even if they're made of the same ice would have a different reflectance spectra because you know they're interacting with the with the with the light coming from from that star which has shifted further into the into the infrared so you get a different looking ice even if it's the same ice right which would add an, another level of complexity to this so we could we could say something about the heterogeneity right and yeah Hugh's right it doesn't give that that powerful uh, reflective burst, if you will, right? It's maybe more of a gradual thing that we could potentially disentangle between the between the land and, and yeah. the ice itself. But and polarization, and polarization is another way of getting at these things. Yeah. So we've heard about phase mapping, and now a little bit about ocean glint mapping, which I didn't even know existed. That's cool. Um, but the other well, way, theoretically, that- anyway, hasn't actually been done. Well, yet, yes. I should stress. <laughs> <laughs> but it, theoretically, you know, at least ten years ago, it was thought we could do it with James Webb, uh, or maybe with Louvois, depending on the configuration that goes up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, watch watch the space. Um, but we should move on to the other technique, which has been used, and that is eclipse mapping. So this is when uh, the planet passes behind the star and during the time where it's being obscured by the the, the star itself um effectively the, the the brightness distribution of the planet gets imprinted onto um the light that's coming from the planet during that phase so so this was actually first done again on on hd189 i think using the same data sets as the first phase curve the good thing about this is that because most of the time planets are eclipsed um at the limb of their star but also not kind of perpendicular so as they're moving across the star the star is is uh at an angle to the planet's motion which means that as it's you know as it's being cut by the limb of the star in two directions you can actually build up a 2d map of the surface in the way that you can't with phase mapping um so imagine it i like to imagine it like when you're slicing an onion in strips so if you slice it in strips that's going into that's going behind the star you get stripes and then when you come out of the star you're coming out at the the opposite angle so you just switch from one angle to the next angle and you start dicing it into tiny cubes and that's what we're doing with the surface is we're dicing it into tiny cubes which give us that full 2D information of that day side. Nice nice analogy. Yeah. That's that's helped me a lot. <laughs> And this was actually how Pluto was mapped back in the 80s before they had you know, New Horizons, which didn't arrive till 2016, um, because Ceres was eclipsing Pluto. And so if you could observe, and, and as it was eclipsing, it was processing. So it was moving up effectively as we look at it, the, 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 the surface of Pluto. And that meant that every strip was a new um, strip of information about, uh, about the surface of Pluto. And that was the best map we had of it until New Horizons arrived. I remember that map. It, it made it look uh, kind of yellowy brown. It did, yeah. And when we actually rolled up, it was pretty red and reflective. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't think it was a colour map. I think there was false colour, right? Yes, that's true. But that's definitely something that, that for Earth-like planets, we could do an equivalent. Yeah, eclipse mapping, uh, eclipse mapping is like really 
powerful because we still don't understand how things might be transported across the poles and and the degree at which that will be different. So these these phase maps are really beautiful and we can see this hotspot shift, the shift in the, the thermal heat, but how far that extends towards the poles is really important. And theoretically, the rotation period of the planet, so if they're tidally locked, the rotation period is the same as its orbital period. But if they're not, then that's that's going to be different. The rotation period should dictate how banded the atmosphere is. So Jupiter is incredibly banded. It's got a very, very short rotation period. But if we're talking about rotation periods on on orders of days, then it should have one solid, massive supersonic jet around around the equator. But we don't know how far those extend. And that would really, these 2D information, informational maps would really give us information that we need to prove those theories to prove that we understand atmospheric dynamics. And to some extent, we know that we do in a lot of ways. The solar system is really good for that kind of thing. But also, we need the multi-wavelength here as well. Eclipse maps aren't just photometric. Right now, we've only got photometric eclipse maps. And what we need is spectroscopic ones, ones that go over multiple wavelengths. So again, we can probe these pressure layers. That again, that's I'm so biased towards things of an atmosphere. I'm sorry, surface. So we can probe different compositions of the surface <laughs> as you no, go sorry. across some kind of terrestrial like uh, planetary. It's okay to be biased, Helen, as long as you one are transparent about it, and two, we have other folks who who can. I do love this my stuff, atmospheres. You know. What can I say? <laughs> she does. That's why we have you. That's why we have you on here. <laughs> what I want to see, what I want to resolve, is the edge of a polar vortex around some of these planets. Because we've got some amazing polar vortices in our solar system. Even Mars, which has a pathetic atmosphere, has an amazing polar vortex. I'm thinking of Saturn. Here, I mean, and Saturn, you that gorgeous right. hexagon. And yeah. Juno with these Jupiter images where you see multiple different storm systems. What are the poles of these giant planets like? And how how do the dynamics there differ? Isn't that impossible to measure? That won't we uh, never have a view of poles? We will never have a Jupiters? view of poles of the, the hot Jupiters, but we can get the edges. We can get up to that kind of level. Oh, right, yeah. And this really depends on what you were saying before. In eclipse mapping, what's really important is having those segments be at the most opposing angle you can. So what you want for an eclipse map is something called a very high impact parameter. So you don't want it to be passing behind the equator of its star. You want it to be passing you know, by the top of its star or the bottom of its star. You want it to be as far away from equator on as possible so that those segments are really diced up into tiny little tiny little squares. Well, I mean, it's it's quite impressive. All of the the, the maps that we already have of, of exoplanets in this kind of hot Jupiter regime, but there are quite a few challenges in moving that to you know from these worlds with large atmospheres to kind of terrestrial rocky planets. And of course, we haven't even conquered zone. them for the hot Jupiters yet. So, yes, of course. Um, for example, for eclipse mapping, the big problem with with mapping a planet like the Earth in this way is that effectively you need a long time what well, the longer that your planet takes to cross the limb of its star the better your resolution is but for planets like the earth they cross the limb of the stars in in minutes um whereas hot jupiters take even even though hot jupiters have a shorter transit duration they, they can take an hour crossing the limb um so effectively this this eclipse mapping is is kind of out 
for uh, Earth-like planets. Um, one aside on that is that actually if you had an Earth-like planet around a white dwarf, a white dwarf being one of these incredibly tiny um, post-end-of-life end stars, which are kind of the size of Earth but the mass of, 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 of uh, the Sun, um, these are so small that uh, you could easily uh, map um, planets being eclipsed or even transiting these these white dwarfs we talk a little bit about that in our other episode this month uh so check out the interview with dr sarah casewell yes um and in fact there was one paper that suggested you could map mountains on white dwarfs by looking at the transits of the of an earth-like planet in front of it because you would be able to map topology on the surface like with the moon um, when you see the terminator of the moon you can see yes, the mountains exactly amazing yeah. um so it's all about that ratio, right, of planet to star size. Yes, yeah. in terms of eclipse mapping, yes. Um, yeah. So for phase mapping, um, what usually happens with both currently when we have maps of, of phases is we effectively have the planet and the star combined, and we, we, we pull out the starlight and look only at the planet light. Um, and because the planets are hot and glow brightly in, in, in the infrared especially, then we can easily do that because these... These worlds are, are, you know, only, only, um, one in, only provide, you know, one part in a thousand or one part in 10,000 to the star. Well, for, whereas for Earth's, um, Earth's, well, the, the Earth is one billion or 10 billion 10 times billion, fainter. Isn't it? 10 billion times fainter than this, than the sun. So you'd have to tease out a, tig a signal that's one part in, 10 billion uh so it's obviously going to be a lot more difficult because the sun is moving and doing things we don't understand at that kind of level so the only way we can do these kind of phase mapping is if we can remove the starlight completely by resolving the planet so by not having to deal with stellar photons we can just block it out with a coronagraph and we can point a telescope directly and catch the the light coming directly off the planet of the the surface or the atmosphere of a planet and of course we've been talking about doing these maps of these hot Jupiters in the infrared with Spitzer and with Hubble. But that's because these planets are so hot, that's where their thermal energy is coming out. Whereas for the Earth, it would to get that thermal energy from the Earth, because we're so much colder, you'd have to go really, really far into the infrared. So this is what we've been talking about in terms of the reflectivity instead. So the reflected light from a hot Jupiter is well into the UV. It's down at that, that kind of 200 nanometer wavelength range but for the earth it's right in that optical range and into the infrared so we can use that reflected light and that's what we would be looking at compared to the hot jupiters where we're really seeing the thermal light the light that is directly being emitted as heat from these planets so it's a very different kind of kettle of fish there one of the good things i guess about going to small planets or just planets further from their star is that these planets aren't tidally locked. So they have some intrinsic rotation themselves. So rather than for a hot Jupiter where the uh, rotation period is exactly the period that it takes to go around the star, uh, planets further out can have, you know, they, they're rotating of their own accord, just like our, our Earth is. And actually that rotation, that moves... Uh, continents and oceans and clouds into view every single rotation. And so using just a single kind of... Uh, a single light curve, so the brightness over time from planets, you can tease out the rotation period and using the, the, the brightness as a function of rotation period, you can tease out a map 
from the surface of the planet using something called photometric mapping. And this was actually performed, I think it was two years ago, there was a uh, an April Fool's Day paper by Rodrigo Luger um, where they claimed a detection of continents from an Earth-like planet in TESS. Uh, and they, they made good on that claim because they yeah, used... Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah, they used photometric mapping to tease out the Earth's reflection um, over time and using the known rotation of Earth, they were able to map the continents and the oceans and the clouds of Earth in a kind of crude map, but but they were there. You know, you look and look at it, oh, and you yeah, can spot really South were. America and Asia and 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 Africa. Uh, it's really and Australia really was paper. glowing. <laughs> so this is kind of how I, I I see the kind of the the progression of this this mapping exoplanet field. It's going to move to um, directly image planets, smaller and smaller planets. You know, going from Jupiter's down to to Earth-like planets in the future. There is always going to be some degeneracy. There, We were talking about about kind of um, whether you can resolve uh, longitudinal stripes or whether you can get some sort of longitudinal um, pixels as well. And I think that that's also always going to be a problem. The poles are going to be difficult to observe. And maybe differentiating between things that have similar colours and spectra, like ice and clouds and, and different types of rock. These of might never be possible. On the orientation of the system. So... What you're going to be able to to measure is going to be different for something like Beta Pick, assuming it was an Earth-like planet, uh, because of the orientation of that system compared to something like HR8799, which has those four planets that are we're seeing potentially the poles of some of these worlds. So, but but we wouldn't have the option of seeing the equator of them. So yeah, we would South need Pole, to yeah. understand and disentangle those two from the inclination of the system and and, and our viewing angle of it. Yeah. So there were the, one of the inspirations for, for this segment was actually a paper that was came out last week by Ayazawa et al. And they were looking at, so they basically took the Discover maps of Earth, so that's a, an Earth observation satellite, and they turned that into the equivalent maps of an exo-Earth uh, at 10, 10 parsecs, I think, or 10 light years. And they basically... Using that kind of ejected simulated data, they tested whether HABEX, so that's one of these five potential post-James Webb flagship telescopes that NASA is contemplating at the moment. So whether HABEX could actually map the surface of an Earth-like planet at that distance. Uh, and, and they showed that by observing this planet, or the star system, I guess, uh, for a day every month over two years, so um, what's that, 24 days total, uh, the HABEX could actually build up a good enough map to resolve... Uh, most of that exo-Earth's continents, so four of the exo-Earth continents, uh, at a signal to noise of about five. So that, again, the, the map, as you would call it, looks a bit ratty, and it's only a couple of colours. Um, but that's a real good sign that that we're we're actually closer to this than than you might expect. That that only in in you know ten twenty years we might be able to do this to build up maps is this, of, of exo. Is this ideal Habex with the star shade and everything? Or yes, I think okay, so. Okay, yeah. so idealized Habex with. A fully auto, you know, configured starship, yeah. and and the correct um, target to look at. And they didn't put clouds on their planet. I should add. So uh, they were they were assuming no clouds. So maybe an atmosphereless continent. Uh, so obviously, there's a lot of things you you have you add, and you know, uh, a lot of systematics that you might end up having. So I think this is a very optimistic thing that that that. Habex might be able to do, but it's a good sign that you know maybe not Habex, but the ELTs and the space telescope generation after Habex, these could actually physically do these measurements. They could do a photometric map of exo Earths. Um, so I certainly see this 
as a possibility within our lifetimes, alongside something like detecting biosignatures or, um, I guess, SETI. I don't know. <laughs> what, what do you guys think the chances of, 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 of this sort of technique actually coming good for an exo-Earth are? I'd like to think, uh, think pretty good. Uh, you know, I think you presented a pretty optimistic, optimistic view here, here, and I think that, that can give us uh, some hope for the future. But I guess I just wanted to touch on one thing that we haven't haven't really mentioned yet. I know we've talked about different kinds of planets, those those big ones with the atmospheres and the smaller ones with the surfaces. But if you take those smaller ones with the surfaces, there there can be uh, orbital configurations that are a little bit more handy for disentangling the surface and the atmosphere. So, for example, if you can imagine, you know go back to the habitable zone concept. If you had a planet that was maybe on the inner edge of that habitable zone, its its atmosphere is, is getting heated, it's getting inflated, you know, it's possibly going to a runaway greenhouse. That might be a little bit easier to, to disentangle. We might not be able to see the surface, but we could say, okay, this atmosphere of this planet is doing something pretty intense. Equally, on the outer edge of the habitable zone, where, where you know, the atmosphere might be condensing onto the surface would be, again, a very different, uh, very different kind of uh, response, you know, th- that we might see. So there's the the possibility of maybe using, um, you know, those kind of boundaries, those transitionary zones, whether it's in space or in distance, to to really help us to disentangle that. And maybe we're not we're not quite there yet. I mean, it would also help us understand a lot more about about the boundaries of the habitable zone, and maybe finally you know put that argument to, to rest. Um, so I think you know there are there are possibilities, and I'm always uh, impressed and in awed by the ingenuity of 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 the observers and the theorists for finding new ways uh, and 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 new techniques using the same stuff uh, to do incredible work. So I'm I'm pretty confident that we'll we'll get some real advancements of this in our lifetime, certainly. Yeah, I definitely think there's going to be advancements. I think this conversation has kind of thrown me back to episode 42 where we talked to Dr. Stephen Kane and we were we were chatting about the fact that we didn't know what Venus's surface was like until we went there but I think what we can do with this is we can learn from that we have those examples in our solar system that we know what Venus is like once we went there but we also know what it looked like when we couldn't understand what the surface was like and we can use that information now of course that leads us into the the pitfall of not being able to understand something that we don't have a reference point for. But I think because we've got such a diversity of terrestrial worlds in our solar system from all of the moons and the planets, that we've got a huge repertoire to build from and to understand. So I'm really excited to see this happen and kind of come into the its own, but I don't expect to necessarily be around and working at the center of any of this anymore when it does. As you know, I'm the pessimist here, or I'd like to call the realist, uh, if at all possible. And I think the timelines are longer than we'd like. Maybe you just retire early after a very successful career in science. Love it. So could be that as well. (laughs) Exocast. Well, that was a great discussion and thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to look out for our other two episodes this month where we chat with Dr. Sarah Casewell about irradiated brown dwarfs. And as always, we provide a roundup of recent exoplanet news. But for now, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Exocast. I have exoplanets. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. 
Hugh Osborne, the Tess Chaops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern, and Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Music was courtesy of Poddington Bear.